0: Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Carrington as he shares this week's message.
1: Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 9 verse 18. As We look
0: at a confession that leads to a new revelation, a confession that leads to a new ref- Revelation. I want to start off by just sharing something here, profound, something that took me all week to study. I found it deep into the bowels of scripture. It goes something like this, well, Old Buddha was a man, and I'm sure that he meant well, but I pray for his disciples lest they wind up in hell. And I'm sure that old Muhammad thought he knew the way, but it won't be a hair of Krishna we stand before on the judgment day. Some of you are looking at me with odd looks. So goes the first verse of the song, O Buddha. It's from the Imperials, Heed the Call album that was released in 1979. Is anyone here even born in 1979? There's a few of you maybe. Well, look at that. There's very few. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> the song is a tongue-in-cheek little ditty that reflects the scripture's teaching that there is salvation in no other name other than Jesus Christ. The chorus states, no, it won't be old Buddha that's sitting on the throne, and it won't be old Muhammad that's calling us home. It won't be a Hare Krishna that plays the trumpet tune, now we're going to see the sun, not Reverend Moon. So this is just one of my favorite songs growing up in the early 80s there, but I thought it'd be a good segue into what we're talking about as we talk about a confession that leads to a new revelation. Jesus shows once again that he is a welcoming and compassionate savior by miraculously feeding the 5,000 or we should say almost up to 20 to 30,000 people as we saw in the passage last week. And that event is helping the disciples to recognize the true identity of Jesus as more than just a teacher as well as to teach them to trust that God will provide all that they needed all for his children. Now, there, as I said, it, it's opening the eyes to the true nature of Jesus and is he, he is the Messiah. And it leads to this week's pivotal scene in Luke's narrative as Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Now, at this point, they are witnessing something wonderful, extraordinary, and even supernatural. They believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but still, as we continue through Luke's narrative, we're going to see that they're still unsure of what that even means, what it entails, and what Jesus' mission is and where they fit in. So with it, I'd like to read the passage, Luke 9, verses 18. We're going to read the first few verses. Hopefully you have your scripture, you have it turned there, it is on the monitor. But again, it says, now it happened that as he was praying alone, Jesus finally is getting along with his disciples that he was trying to do last week. So Jesus, once again, in Luke, you'll see Jesus is praying alone quite a bit. And the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, well, John the Baptist. But others say you're Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And verse 20, then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Give us your wisdom this morning, Father. Thank you for this portion of scripture. We thank you for the disciples, and well as Peter, the spokesman, his, his confession. And, and it's on this confession hangs the balance of our eternity. On this, it, it, it holds the balance of, of, of the church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against this confession. So I pray that you just be with us this morning. Thank you for this time. Lord, open up our minds and hearts to see this anew. And Lord, I pray that you work in our hearts that we may respond to the Holy Spirit's work. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as we said, are, are you guys hearing noises? Is there some? Yeah. Lainey, would you just take a quick walk around the thing? I think we may have some. Every once in a while, we'll have kids that will start kind of. Would you mind just taking it and make sure everything's okay? Thank you. Jesus is ending his Galilean ministry after 18 months. So Jesus has been traveling around Galilee, northern Galilee, for 18 months. Remember, his, his earthly mission is, his ministry is only about three years. So he's, he's about halfway through here. And he begins now his journey to Jerusalem and his predetermined appointment with the cross. Jesus knew where his end, his earthly ministry was going to end. First, though, before he begins that journey, Jesus takes them to a place where they can be alone and take some time to pray. And though Luke does not identify their location, Mark's gospel records that Jesus' disciples make a stop at Caesarea Philippi, which, interesting for us today, was a center of pagan worship throughout that area's time. Included the Canaanite Baal, Baal the Canaanite God. It included the Greek God Pan, and now it was a place where Caesar, the Roman Empire or, or Emperor, was now proclaimed God. It is here that as Jesus takes them there. He's going to ask his disciples, Who do you say that I am? And this is the most important question that, as we saw several weeks ago, had been bothering Herod. Who is Jesus. Now, Jesus asked them two questions. The first one we see is Who do people say that I am? Jesus wanted to know who the people thinks he is. And everywhere Jesus went, people came to see him. His reputation had spread far and wide, and immense crowds would gather to hear him teach, to see him perform miracles, and to receive healing. Luke tells that some of the crowds were astonished. Some were amazed and received him with joy and rejoicing while others were perplexed and troubled. They were angry at Jesus and sought to destroy him, to put him down. The disciples would have been in and among the crowds uh, more so than Jesus and been able to hear and answer the question about Jesus as you're traveling around, as you're among the people, what are they whispering? What are they saying? So he wants to know, what are they saying? The response to the question mirrors really the rumors that Herod had heard and been given to him in verses seven through eight of chapter nine that we read earlier. And they replied that the people think Jesus is, is John the Baptist. Now, Herod and others were very impacted by G, uh, John's ministry. And they believed Jesus was cut of the same cloth. He, he had the same uh, tenor. He had the same type of mission. It's not that John the Baptist was resurrected, but that he had the mantle, so to speak, of John. And what's something that you and I may not have also realized that John, John the Baptist, and Jesus were cousins. So there might have been some physical uh, uh, look-alike about them. So when they saw him, they they reflected he maybe even sound like his cousin. Some thought he was Elijah, and Elijah, uh, we've seen many times, has been prophesied in the Old Testament as coming back before the Messiah, the one who would prepare the way. And to this day, uh, the Jews provide an empty cup and an open door at the Passover for Elijah. They believe Elijah has still to come, though you and I believe that that was John the Baptist, that he was the return of John the Baptist, or John of Elijah, excuse me. See, they're looking for the Messiah due to the testimony of the prophets, some thought from the book of Maccabees, that's not found in our scriptures, that Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, would come before the Messiah. But they were not exactly sure who Jesus was, and most believed he was the one to come before the Messiah. So the opinions of Jesus' identity were, re, identity were very diverse during his ministry. You also might recall that the Pharisees thought that Jesus was Beelzebub, the prince of demons. His family and others thought that he was mentally deranged. He was out of his mind. Either way, all of the answers of the crowd and the others now consist of an inadequate view of Jesus. And hearing what the crowd thinks, Jesus now moves his disciples as he directs them to the question in verse 20. But who do you say that I am? Jesus is interested in what those who know him the best think. They've traveled with him. They've ministered with him. They've been privately taught and instructed by him. Jesus is is expecting more from his disciples than the crowd. And by this point, they've had special insight and they've experienced a, a taste of his power as they too were given the power to heal and to teach and to exercise or cast out demons. Peter, who always in scripture is the spokesman of the group, declares that they believe that Jesus is the Christ of God. Now, the English word Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, which is a translation for the Jewish word Messiah that we just sung about here just a moment ago. It means the anointed one. To identify Jesus as Christ is confessed that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the promised one. Jesus is the one that they have been looking for, hoping for, and praying for for centuries. And through nine chapters, Luke has laid down his evidence for his claim that Jesus is that Christ, is that Messiah, the Son of God. In his gospel, he has been relaying eyewitnesses' accounts of all that Jesus had done. He was given testimony of Jesus' identity through his baptism, where the Father audibly declared that Jesus was his Son. We saw Jesus' authority over the natural and supernatural world authority over life and death, authority over the Mosaic law and the Sabbath, and even over the religious leaders who were over the people. This declaration from the disciples will now introduce the real ministry and and mission of Jesus as he, he starts to head towards Jerusalem. In verse 21, Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about their confession. Do not tell anyone who I am just as he silenced the demons and those that he had healed from speaking openly about him jesus commands his disciples to hold off from reporting his identity the disciples will need more instruction on the nature and the mission of the message or the messiah before openly declaring who jesus was jesus begins his instruction in the next passage that we're going to look at next week why Well, as theologian Walter Wessel notes, that the ideas clustered around the title Messiah tended to be more political and national in nature. They were looking for that one who would come and and defeat the Roman Empire, to to bring them back and give them the King of David and bring in prosperity. What we saw in our scripture reading of Isaiah 11 uh, earlier, and Jesus had already experienced that type of emotion fever with the different crowds. The people were always looking uh, for a chance to rise up against the Roman government. And one of the reasons that looked uh, so diligently for them, they looked so diligently for the Messiah was because they misunderstood the mission of the Messiah. Again, they desired a national, political, and military leader, a savior who can deliver them. The Apostle John tells us that after the feeding of the 5,000, that Jesus, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew to the mountain by himself. Now, I want to take a moment to consider the importance and the impact of the disciples' confession that Jesus is the Christ of God. The word Christ originally was an adjective meaning rubbing on or used as an ointment or a salve. Later it was adapted to identify one who was anointed. Now anointing typically was with olive oil. They would pour it on the head or put it on place on, on the person's head or some form or fashion that way. And it was part of the ceremony in the appointment of kings and priests and prophets in Israel. In the Old Testament, we see references to the Lord's anointed, uh, referencing the Messiah, the Redeemer. Luke specifies that God anointed Jesus with the Spirit. The Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible notes that it was the official title given to Jesus in the New Testament. It signifies, speaking of the word Christ, it signifies his office as the anointed one of God, the anointed Savior, and alludes to his spiritual qualifications for the task of saving his people. Now, in the Old Testament, we read of several promises of the Messiah, the Christ, who is the future deliverer and savior, who would rescue his people and usher in a time of prosperity and blessings. And this is what they desire. By the way, don't you and I desire this as well? We desire a prosperity. We desire blessing. We desire peace. Isn't that what we're always looking for a next president to give us or the next social government program? or the new job, or a new relationship, a new place to live. Oh, we're finally going to be better now. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, Yahweh promises King David that the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house, speaking of when David was a king. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom." And he shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. This this is a great promise. That that the throne of King David will last forever. Peace and prosperity and blessings would it be upon the nation. In Psalms chapter 2 verse 7. King David himself sings, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son today I have begotten you. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, you see it here on the monitor as well, I believe, that the prophet declares, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. We think of this during Christmas typically. It says, the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to hold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. It's the zeal of the Lord of hosts who will do it. So this is what they've been looking for. This is what you and I desire, really. Now Luke has prepared his readers for this announcement and the recognition that Jesus is the Messiah. That he is the Christ, the anointed one of God through the testimonies of the angels back Remember in chapter 2, verse 11? The narrator of Luke in in chapter 2, verse 26. The demons who declared, I know who you are. You are the son of God. And indirectly by Jesus in 418 when he says, the spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach and, and, and to rescue those that are in captivity. However, as we look here at Luke chapter 9, 18 through 22, this is the first time that the disciples have referred to Jesus as the Messiah, as the Christ, the anointed one. Now Jesus then, after they make that announcement, Jesus then confuses his disciples by giving them a new revelation, hence why I say the title is a confession that leads to a new revelation, because they did not expect nor understand what Jesus was about to tell them in verse 21. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this this to no one. And saying, the son of man, here's the revelation, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, this is confusing to them. Why? Because remember, they have been looking for the Messiah for hundreds of years. And what are they looking for? They're looking for the Messiah to set up his kingdom that will reign forever in peace and righteousness. So this is what they've been expecting. This is what they've been hoping for. They've been following one false Messiah after another, always to see that Messiah be killed or to fail. But here Jesus says, yes, I am the Christ. So to them, they think our time has finally come. But then Jesus gives them a new revelation that they should have known, but they just didn't catch. And this is going to throw them off. I think this is going to kind of stutter them for just a little bit. You see, Jesus reveals that the Messiah, the Christ, is going to suffer many things. That he's going to be rejected by the very people that he was sent to save. That he was going to be killed but that he would be resurrected. They had no idea what to do with this new revelation. This did not fit their paradigm at all of the man they were expected. The the person, their, their savior. Turn to Isaiah 53. Now, as I say that, this should not have been confusing or a new revelation to them. In Isaiah 53, written hundreds of years before Jesus was born, Yahweh, through the prophet Isaiah, declares that the Messiah must suffer. This is one of the reasons that the Jews today deny Jesus. They cannot understand nor believe that the Messiah, the Christ, would suffer and die. His whole purpose was to deliver Israel from the yoke of oppression from the Gentile nations. He is to set up his kingdom forever in victory and rule in righteousness, ushering in the Siloam, the peace that they have long awaited. Judaism interprets this passage as speaking of all of Israel, not a specific person, the suffering servant. But as you and I read along... It becomes very clear that this passage is describing Jesus to a T. So we're going to read this passage, Isaiah 53. Again, if you don't have a Bible, please let me know. I'd love to give you a copy of it. Bring it with you. That way you can write in and highlight it and just follow along with us. But Yahweh, through the prophet Isaiah, writes this Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of a dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. This is not a man from central casting of Hollywood, right? This is no Cary Grant or Brad Pitt or whomever might be that person you think of today. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hid their faces. Speaking of their Christ, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, uh, stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions, our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities, our transgressions, our sins. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. In other words, upon him, he received the punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a land that is led to the slaughter, and like the sheep that goes before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Look at verse 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off all the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of his people, none. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man. Think of his tomb. He was buried in the tomb of a rich man. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. They could not understand what Jesus was saying. What in the world do you mean you're gonna suffer, be rejected, be killed? There's no, I I don't understand that at all. That's not the Messiah that we'd expect him. But yet here in Isaiah, their prophet that speaks much of their Messiah that speaks much of the peace and righteousness and, and the desires that they were looking for, they missed this. But look at here, verse 10. Why must this be? It was the will of the Lord. Now when you see that Lord, it's all capitalized. That, that's the personal name of God, that's Yahweh. It was the will of God to crush him. Therefore I will divide him the portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. They could not understand what Jesus was telling them. But you and I, we have the wonderful words of scripture to fall back onto and the spirit to help us understand that Jesus is the Christ. And he must suffer, he must be rejected, and he must be killed and be resurrected for you and I. For only in that do you and I have any hope. You see, Jesus is more than just a good moral man that lived a good life. He is more than just a teacher that taught people to be nice to each other. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God that was promised back in Genesis 3. We must remember that scripture teaches that after the creation, our first parents fell into temptation and rejected the goodness of God, which brought sin and death into the world. And you and I must understand, as we see this, sin has destroyed this perfect world. Sin has destroyed the perfect obedience. And sin has destroyed the perfect relationship that God had. When you look around at all the evils, the destruction, the problems of this world is because of sin. But Jesus has come to make that which went wrong right. God's solution to these problems was the promise of a Savior. Turn to Genesis chapter 3. I just mentioned it, but look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. This passage is understood, as, is understood as pointing to the defeat of the serpent by a future descendant of the woman. You might hear me say it's the story of the Bible, that the prince shall slay the dragon and win the girl. That's the story of the Bible. It's called the Proto-Evangelium. You know, a little word that just means the first announcement of the gospel. It was the promise of a Savior to come to save us from our sin. In Genesis chapter 3, look at verse 14, the Lord said to the servant, this is is the dragon, this is the one who emphasizes uh, Satan. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go and dust, you shall eat all of your days of life. And then speaking to Satan, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking of Eve, the children of Eve, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, Satan will attack. He will cause Jesus to suffer. He will cause Jesus to be rejected and killed. But yet what we see is Jesus will be victorious. You may ask, why do we need the Savior? Well, the answer is found in Ephesians 2 that we looked at last week. The Bible says that we were dead in the trespasses and the sin in which we once walked. We have been found in the course of this world. We followed the prince of the power of the air, speaking of Satan. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You and I were sons of disobedience. It says we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature, the Bible tells us, that we were children of wrath. All of us. No exceptions. It is this promise of a Savior sent to destroy Satan. In 1 John uh, 3, 8, we read that the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. You see, we need a Savior to redeem us from the curse of sin and death. And this declaration that Jesus is the Christ of God, that he is the Messiah, brings hope. You'll see it here in the monitor. It brings us hope that Jesus is that final prophet who comes to tell us the good news of the gospel, hence what we have. We have an uh, authoritative word from God that tells us what we need to know and all things that lead to life and godliness. It's the hope of the priest who comes to offer himself as a sin offering to pay the, the price of our sin and to present us clean before the Father so that we may be his children but also it's the hope that Jesus is the king who will make all things new and rule in righteousness and justice. One day Christ is coming. Justice and equity, the new $50 word, will be done. You see, Jesus is the hope for those that have lost, that are lost in their sins. Jesus is the hope for those that are struggling, fighting their sin today. Jesus' hope for those who need healing. That might be emotionally, mentally, relationships. Maybe it's physical. Jesus' hope for those that have lost loved ones. For only in Jesus will we ever see them again. Jesus' is the hope for our children and families. We spoke of this before. The greatest thing that you can give your children, mom and dad, is one is good marriage. And number two, point them to Christ. It's better than a, a great education, or a beautiful home, or filling their activities and schedules with music and sports. See, Jesus' is hope for our churches, our cities, our nation, and our government. And it's sad that we live in a world today that, when a pandemic happens, that they would label churches as unessential I will tell you this that every church that proclaims the word of God whose people proclaim that Jesus Christ is more essential than a hospital it's more essential than the CDC it's more essential than any government agency or person for Jesus is the Christ after observing Jesus for some time and witnessing his reckless power, his life changing message, the private discussions and the teaching moments, and even performing many of the same miracles as Jesus in their own short term ministry, the disciples are still struggling to put it together. But before you and I look at them with disdain, you and I are still struggling to put it together at times, are we not? Living a life and accepting Jesus on his terms, not our own? Isn't that what's going on? Their hearts are still hardened and their heart and their eyes are still blinded to the truth of who Jesus is, as some may be here this morning. Today, it's not much different. Mark Copeland in his commentary in the Gospel of Mark notes that many people people today believe that Jesus is just a fabrication, maybe a myth, a legend, a fairy tale, denying that he ever existed or or was was ever born. That's a a strange thought, but there are some who believe that. Many who may accept his existence will say, well, he was simply a good and enlightened man. He was a wise teacher, kind of like Gandhi. Martin Luther King Jr., and other peaceful teachers. Some believe, while well, he was a prophet, he was a prophet of God, but he was not the son of God, such as the religion of, of Islam, or maybe even Mormonism, where he is just one of the sons of God, or Jehovah Witnesses who believe he's not the son of God at all. He's just a, a, a special created being, like an, a super angel. There's no hope in that. On the website, and I told this about, I think a couple of weeks ago, undojesus.org. They boldly state that Jesus is not God, nor the Son of God. They oppose the idea that Jesus is ever considered a Son of God. They oppose Christian influence and control within any, within, within any social context the founder of the, of the site goes on to state that a belief in Jesus harms the world and that the followers of Jesus are killing people. Why? Because wars are fought defending the false beliefs about Jesus. That a person believing that Jesus is living a lie and is in some respect a dysfunctional member of society. But you can believe that a man can be a woman and a woman can be a man. And we can vote them for governor. Okay. They may also believe that Jesus harms the world and the followers of Jesus are killing us since the media often reports instances of murders by people justifying their actions based on their religious beliefs as if we should trust the media. Some of this is my own mere opinion, so you're going to have to do some shifting there. Yes, these things happen in the name of Jesus. Horrors have happened in the name of Jesus. Wars, killings. But those are not people who are declaring that Jesus Christ is king. And that he's Christ. They believe that the focus of the world, this undue Jesus, they believe that the focus of the world does not need to be on Jesus and that he is the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of God, and that he'll bring peace and righteousness and that he is coming back again to judge the living and the dead. No, the focus of the world should be on a planet that is an everlasting paradise. As if they've never been to Bakersfield. That didn't go too well. Anyone from Bakersfield here? It's not whether Jesus is God or not. They just want all things to be as they envision it to be. But let me end as we come to this. Who is Jesus is the most important question people need to ask themselves. It's what we need to ask our friends and our families, our loved ones. The most important person that you will ever introduce to your friends, your family, your children is Jesus. But which one are you going to introduce them to? Which Jesus? The good teacher? The moral teacher? The Sunday school Jesus? Or the one who's the Savior, the Messiah? It is upon that question, as I said last week, that determines their eternal destiny, both in this life and life to come. You cannot remain neutral about who Jesus is. You are going to have to declare who Jesus is eventually. Paul writes in Philippians 2, verse 9 through 11, you'll see it here on the the monitor. That God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess, what? Say with me, that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. So let me ask you this morning. Can you say from your heart that Jesus is Christ? Does your life reflect that, your attitudes? Do you look to him as the Savior? Or has he just become someone that you're acquainted with, that you pray to from time to time, one who you just stir in to solve your problems? Or is he the Savior of the Word, the anointed one of God? Would you join Peter and the disciples in confessing that Jesus is the Christ? With every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm going to ask the worship team to go ahead and come on up at this time and land in as well for pastor's prayer. I want you to take a moment to just to pause and consider their answer. Jesus is the Christ of God. Would you lift up your hearts and pray, Father, what does that mean for me today? What does that mean for me? What does that mean for me as a father or as a son, as an employee, as a husband or as a, as a wife? For in my marriage, for, for, for in my financial planning, for, for in my dreams and aspirations, for how I entertain myself. What does it mean? If you do not know Jesus as Savior, if you cannot proclaim that he is Christ, then I would call you today to do so. Today is the day of salvation. We would love to show you after service how you can know who Jesus is. Pray for the Holy Spirit to open up your heart and mind. That you may be saved from your sin. That you may reign with him, as the scripture tells, forever in peace and righteousness May God be glorified in all this. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help share the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.